Welcome again to another edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast. I'm here with Mike Crimmins, who is officially back off his six-month sabbatical and well-groomed, I might add. Oh, I did. I did actually finally take that sabbatical shower, post-sabbatical shower. <laughs> yeah, I figured you were. Uh, you spent the last six months sort of watching TV and I did. I getting bit- boned up on all of the new uh, uh, climate journals and exactly binge watched all of those netflix shows on climate well it's good to have you back in the office mike yeah it's good and you were kind of gallivanting across the world yeah we both june yeah we both spent a good part of june outside of tucson outside (laughs) of the southwest which was yeah i think we've wised up uh over the years to uh sort of escape the the doom season but uh we have a lot to talk about because it's been a little bit over a month this is uh again our first episode of the 2017 monsoon edition. Uh, Most wonderful time of the year. Best time to talk about weather and climate. More weather than climate, but climate obviously plays an important role. So in this edition, uh, we're going to try to hit on three major, major topics. Obviously, we want to recap June, which was dry and hot. It's kind of as we expected. I think we may have even have been prescient in the uh, at the uh, in our last podcast by suggesting that June was going to be hot and dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that we went we went out on a limb on that one. We did. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll talk about the June uh, June temperature and, uh, and and June climate and that of course uh, we we can't have that conversation without talking about wildfire activity which has been pretty widespread and talk about the the fire activity around the southwest and then that will take us up to the first part of what's turned out to be a pretty quiet monsoon but we'll get into that right right so june mike you disappeared the latter half of june i was gone for the for pretty much the the full month but uh, i want to point out that I was here a lot more June than you were. You were, which yeah. is why we're going to lean on you on, on this. <laughs> what I did realize is that I missed the 122nd coolest June on record. <laughs> Don't play with my mind like that. It was the 122nd coolest out of out 123. Out of 123 years. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, I'll flip that around. Okay. So June for the statewide average turned out to be the the second warmest on record. For the statewide average. For the statewide average. And if you break that down uh, and look at the divisional, the climate division ranks, particularly if you focus in on the maximum temperature, all but one of of Arizona's seven climate divisions uh, saw their most, their warmest average maximum temperature on record. So it was indeed a a very uh, warm time in, in Arizona. For Tucson, Mike, we set a number of actual daily records. It was the hottest June on record for, for Tucson. So I'm looking at the, the local uh, Tucson Weather Service uh, June 2017 climate report. It was the second hottest all-time high temperature on record for Tucson and the seventh hottest m- of any month on record for Tucson as well. People may remember last year, last June was also epically warm, but this this was warmer. This yeah, was this warmer. one this one was uh, epically warmer. Absolutely, <laughs> epically warmer. Is it, can you say that epically warmer? It's I, not I, exactly the most eloquent way. Is to it? Well, it. that's what I for six months in sabbatical. I, I did a lot of uh, sort of training, public speaking, that kind of stuff. So, so. we had four we had four records in Tucson, mm-hmm. um, four maximum temperature records from the nineteenth to the twenty fifth. The temperatures were either close to one hundred and ten or above. Right. A very warm heat wave. Were you here for that? Was. 
I, I was I was here for that. And, <laughs> yeah. So if you look at the extent of the um, record temperatures across the Southwest, the whole Western U.S. for the month of June was actually above average. But the epicenter for the the heat wave was really on Arizona and a bit of Western New Mexico. But as far as places experiencing some of their record warmest for the over 100 year record was parts of well, as you just pointed out, much of Arizona. Yeah, it was uh, it was really Arizona kind of underground for that. <laughs> it was miserable. And How I, do you know it was miserable? I'm imagining. I've been here for those. I was here last year uh, during that time. I think in our podcast on the end of May, we were talking about how we can quickly transition into some of these heat waves. And that was, was really what happened. And it, it was almost to the day, it was to the day actually last year, that the heat wave that was over kind of around Father's Day. With June 19th of the peak of the heat wave last year, it was right around those same calendar dates, but we ended up having higher temperatures and for multiple days across much of Arizona. Yeah, so on the 19th, 20th, and 21st, the temperatures here in Tucson were 115, 116, and 115, and those were all records. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Phoenix, for those who are, are tuning in from, from Phoenix, the, the for those same days, it was slightly warmer, you know, 118, 119, and 117. Those are high temperatures. It's also worth pointing out that in the month of June for Tucson, 25 of 30 days were above 100 degrees. So that wears on people. It does. I mean, from afar, it was wearing on me. It <laughs> just just thinking about what oh, that sorry, temperature I'm gloating, was I'm like. Gloating because you it, are gloating. This yeah. is a, this is the first first summer that I've I've wised up and decided, and, and it wasn't actually by intention. It was just more of a work trip. But I decided to escape for for June. It was a surreal heat wave, and I think that what you know stood out for me was you know typically these things sort of they culminate with a day and then they sort of retreat. But this this really went on for days with a brief retreat and then another pulse later in the month where we were back up to near record temperatures. It was a remarkable heat wave. So what was the synoptic pattern that was what was producing that? I mean, again, we expect dry and, and, and hot weather uh, yeah. at least uh, through the end of, of June and the monsoon sometimes can creep in a little bit before June. But up until that, that period, this is the expectation. But was there anything, maybe you can take us through the sort of the atmospheric pattern that helped lead to the to the heat wave. What we've seen is a fairly typical busy uh, mid-latitude jet stream pattern, which you should start to see is starting to retreat towards the north. You know, as those days get longer and we're, we're peaking with the day length on June 21st is that we're starting to heat up in the northern hemisphere. And we expect to see the storm tracks sort of retreat north towards the poles as so, that temperature gradient. So less uh, intrusions of sort of colder air from, yeah. from the north. Yeah, so so that jet stream is going to be at the gradient between the cold air to the north and the warm air to the south. And as the warm air, the whole northern hemisphere warms up, that colder air is really sort of shunted up to the, the far northern reaches where we're, you know, they have less sort of solar radiation. And we're, we have more direct heating down here at the lower latitudes, so we expect to see that go. But, there, you know, there's these waves that are propagating around in the jet stream, and those wiggles will will shove highs and low pressure systems sort of in and out of position. And so what we saw sort of early on in the month was still a fairly active jet stream, some troughs sort of progressing through the Pacific Northwest, and our monsoon ridge, subtropical ridge, is now starting to try to build north. Mm -hmm. And it's doing that sort of in concert with the heating of the land surface across the western U.S. There's an interplay both between the sort of jet stream pattern and then the land surface contrast between the ocean and the warming land surface. And so we had in the middle part of the month a pr 
pretty pronounced what we call meridional flow, where you've got pretty strong sort of shifts in the jet stream. And we had a ridge of high pressure build fairly sharply north across the Western US. And as you do that, you can have some, you know, reasonably strong dynamics that will cause sinking air in concert with all of that surface warming from all those long days and direct solar radiation that's starting to get pumped in at these higher latitudes. And that in concert together will work together to really reinforce the heating at the surface. And then you don't have the clouds, you're going to get these heat waves that kind of emerge. So it's, it's kind of a perfect time of year for down here. What ends up cutting these is when the monsoon moisture starts to come in, mm-hmm. you start to produce convection, you start to produce clouds, and then you, you have you just can't get as much of those heat waves persisting like we did in June. Yeah, and we had real low precipitable water basically until July 4th. Yeah, and so there was there was not much moisture around. Very typical, you know. Very 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 typical. You you don't have you're on sort of the the ridge is building in the north side of the ridge. You've got subsidence. You've got wind out of directions that's not favorable for transport of that subtropical moisture yet, and it's gonna lead to very dry hot conditions, which is climatologically what you'd expect. The monsoon has started a little bit later than its historical average, and certainly a a couple weeks actually later than last year. Uh, and some questions that, that might arise is, well, did this heat wave, did the, the, the heating actually delay the incursion of the moisture? Was there, is there any relation between you know, that intense heat and those conditions and the, the fact that the moisture didn't come in until uh, a little bit later this year? No, I, I think really the delay has been a noisy jet stream pattern. And what ended up happening was that we had that, if you look back to the sort of synoptic, so that broad scale circulation pattern, there was a, at the upper levels, there was a, a cutoff low at upper levels. There was the sharp ridge that was leading to our heating and, uh, and intense sort of heat wave. And to the north of that, we still had some good wiggles in the jet stream. And then by the later part of the month, we had a, a pretty good trough set of in across the western U.S. and into the central U.S. that shoved the subtropical ridge back to the south. And once you have that, you're back in the westerlies. You're back in the sort of late spring pattern then. The heat can still be there, but the moisture is going to be shunted to the south. So you got to wait for that ridge to, to rebuild in across the region. And so it got it was pretty noisy through, through late June and even early parts of July. We still had pretty weak troughs sort of traipsing across the western U.S. And it wasn't until... July 9th, you start to see the ridge build back in, and you're really starting to see the jet stream to the north sort of weaken and us get into this much more typical summertime subtropical ridge sort of setting up across the western U.S. And so I think now what we've settled into it, um, we're probably now more in that consistent summertime pattern we'd expect to see. It seemed to me anyways is fairly typical in the noise around that sort of July 4th in the southern Arizona start date. But, you know, you can look in New Mexico. New Mexico had a f- pretty wet June with all sorts of different sort of mechanisms sort of bringing in the moisture there. And we were a little bit later, but I do think we're now into the the monsoon pattern and we should be consistently with all of the, the caveats that go along with that. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> it's worth saying though, just to, to point of emphasis or uh, an exclamation point on, on, on this heat talk, put this in maybe sort of a broader context, the first six months of average temperature uh, for Arizona for 2017 is so far the, the, the second warmest. So the year since, since January through, through June, it's been the second warmest. That is uh, also the case for 
for New Mexico. Utah is coming in and I believe the fifth warmest on record. Colorado, the third warmest on record. So this is the start of this year. And in fact, if you look at the, the U.S. As, uh, in its entirety, it's, it's trending right now at the second warmest on, on record in 123 years. So we're, we're in, I guess, in play for the warmest, warmest uh, year on record. We'll have to see how that, that plays out with the, you know, we're only halfway there. In looking at the, the daily temperature plots for a couple of places across the Southwest, just sort of thinking back from January 1st, as you were sort of pointing out that we're on this track to be maybe the warmest year in record, is that just thinking through the heat waves that we've seen in the Southwest since January 1st, we've had multiple of them. And if you think back to the March, we had a March heat wave for the second year in a row. We ended up having this kind of miserable June that even trumped last year, which we thought was an epic heat wave. Tucson has seen, out of the last 192 days, has seen 142 days with above average temps, 50 with below average temps. Phoenix has seen 131 days with above average. Phoenix seeing 62 below average. In Albuquerque, it was 140 days above average. 52 of those were below average. So that's how you get to, on a daily weather basis, getting an annual average temperature that sets the record, you know, sort of that uh, weather um, versus climate mix. It's often the really anomalous, the heat waves that happen outside of the months that you expect it that do more damage than, like everybody expects there to be very hot and, and, and to be careful during during June. But in yeah. March, even if even if the, the absolute temperatures aren't as high, they can actually catch people off guard and, and cause more issues than the ones in June. So yep, you know, when a- the heat waves happen, even if the absolute temperatures aren't, aren't as high, really does matter. And sort of looking at these plots, thinking back to how this year has evolved so far, and then having this, you know, culmination of another pretty, it's, it was a pretty epic heat wave. So we, I mean, we have to give credit where credit's due as far as this June with just the run of the temperatures. And and I think the thing that, you know, and just trying to do a little bit of a postmortem on it and looking at some of the, the charts, really trying to understand what were the sort of mechanisms at play. You know, we you have, the, the climate change aspect of this is, absolutely part of the equation is not a hundred percent attribution saying that you know this wouldn't happen but it's certainly the background condition that makes it a bit easier for these types of events because the dynamics didn't look all that particularly impressive as far as the strength of the ridge the position of it well if your baseline temperatures have shifted a couple degrees yeah it gives you it gives you a little bit added boost when you get a dynamic situation with with the synoptics here that it allows you to sort of reach some new temperatures for some length of period there so it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see attribution studies that are going to be done on this to truly try to pick that apart. Yeah, and it's worth also pointing out, and partic- particularly because this is different than than last year, is that June did not receive any precipitation. Yeah, that's right. Right. And that actually reinforces the, the temperatures. So yeah. when, you, when you do have rain events, you tend to have cooler conditions, just not only from the evaporative cooling that happens after, but the, the cloudiness. And Yeah, I mean, you could have envisioned that with this particular ridge position um, and sort of building north that we could have had some subtropical moisture starting to seep in as sort of the early monsoon signal. We didn't see that. And even just having a little bit of that moisture seep in, giving you some cloud cover would have taken the edge off the high temperatures. We wouldn't have reached those high temps. would have seen the overnight temps still be higher. So we would have maybe have seen just the same with the average daily temperatures with that particular heat wave. That, of course, has an influence on fire, which is the other big thing that we pay attention to during this this part of the year up until the monsoon season, because, mm-hmm. you know, June and even July is for the Southwest, it's their, their peak fire seasons. Right. That activity has ramped up in June and actually continued quite vigorously in July as the monsoon came in a little bit later. 
And so right now, the total acres that have burned in Arizona is close to 300,000. And this is slightly less in, than what was burned in, in all of last year, but we're going to pass last year's, last year's mark. And currently, there's a number of fires that are ongoing in the Southwest. More than half of the acres that have burned thus far are have been part of fires that are ongoing. Five fires that are currently in Arizona are receiving the type one incident management teams from the right. uh, the firefighting agencies. The point that I want to make there is, you know, had the monsoon come in a little bit earlier, had it come in when it did last year, that's probably something that a fire that would not have right. have uh, have started. Yeah. And I think you can look across the Southwest here too, and look at the fire activity that's sort of progressed across Arizona, New Mexico through the spring and into the summer here too, is that there's been less activity in New Mexico, and I think that's largely due to them having much better precipitation sort of in the spring and then into this sort of early summer period. Arizona's kind of, kind of left out of that. We did end up, so Tucson proper did not have any precipitation in June, but other parts of the state did have some storm activity at higher elevations, which did lead to some fire starts from lightning. Mm-hmm. And then we've also had quite a few human starts with the, the fires across the Southwest. So it's kind of a mix of what's burning where and what caused it. But absolutely the fact that we haven't had a real good, strong influx of uh, moisture and then precipitation across the state is why we're still dealing with some of these fires. Well, I've noted that there's there's five fires that are currently burning that started June 30th or later. Okay. Yeah. There's the Borough Fire here, which we mentioned that's, that's uh, as of a couple of days ago, consumed about 27,000 acres. There's the Sheet Fire, which actually has only consumed about 4,000 acres, and that's in the Dos Cabeza Mountains in southeast uh, Arizona. And then there's three around Flagstaff, the Bull, the Cedar, and the Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Brooklyn Fire is the largest, 33,000 acres. Each one of those is is what the the fire agencies consider their their type one response. So yeah, again, this is they, where they apply the absolutely. the most resources right. and where they're they're highest level working. Of, uh, yeah, highest level and management with it. Right. The bull, the cedar, and the Brooklyn near Flagstaff started on July seventh and eighth. They largely have been lower elevation fires, so probably feeding off of some of the the fine fuels that have accumulated over the last couple of years with monsoon activity, and then being able to take advantage of the dry conditions of the spring. Uh, haven't seen a ton of real strong activity in the upper elevations because I there was a lot of discussion sort of earlier in the spring that there was going to be more of a worry with lower elevation fires and higher elevation fires. And I think that's largely played out. But as you get later and later into the spring, you get a, a June heat wave like we've seen, you can start to see those heavier fuels at the upper elevations still become, they can come into play too. And we've we've seen some pretty active higher elevation activity with the fires, you know, burning through forest areas now because I think they've had plenty of time to dry out. And to your point, the monsoon can be really the shut the door on that spring activity. And we're kind of on the edge of that with the humidity in, and we need we need a couple good more dousings of sort of widespread precipitation at higher elevations to really put the, put an end to this fire season. Finally, at least for Tucson, and again, you know, the monsoon is very much an individual experience because it, it is it is different depending on what house you're sitting in for the most part and where you're living. But for Tucson, our first rains didn't start until June, ju- sorry, not June. We don't want to go back to June, July 10th. <laughs> right. And juxtapose that again with last year, Mike, where our monsoon came in 2016 for Tucson. I think the 27th of June, actually, was yeah. 
right? Was right. the twenty eighth of June, and we we actually had quite a bit of uh, of early uh, precipitation, two and a half inches by July second for Tucson. You know, fast forward a year, I mean, it's a different picture. It, you know, this is always the interesting thing about the monsoon season is where in a period of two weeks, we can call something early and something late. In a, and as far as a climate phenomena, that's saying a lot, isn't it? I guess it's saying there isn't a lot of variability around when, when the monsoon starts, right? Yeah, and uh, we had a lot of deep existential discussions around here with Ben and you and, and Dan was even here talking about when did this thing start? Does it matter? You know, how do we best measure it? You know, we've got the old dew point definition, which I think we would have met on July 10th based on three consecutive days of 54 degree dew points or greater. Let's say we use that definition okay. because this has been a historically used way. Uh-huh. If we use July 10th as the onset of, of the monsoon, but July 10th then, w- there, was, there was only nine years that started after that, since 1949. By that definition, it would be a, a pretty late start. Right. Interestingly, could have been worse in 1987, that dew point threshold wasn't crossed until July 25th. That sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what to say about that. So I guess it was the late June activity monsoonal last year. I guess it doesn't really matter. I think it probably was monsoonal because it did end up having the dew point definition and consistent rainfall for there. Turned out that it slowed down quite a bit for the, the next subsequent two weeks of July, and then we didn't have a pickup in activity to later on. So it's, I think we're trying to use yes, last year as a comparison to what we might expect this year. We didn't have that same activity, so now we're here in Ju- July 10th. This is absolutely a bit later. It's not the latest. It's kind of in that, what would you, what would you call it? We're off the mean of July 4th, so we're kind of in that sort of later tier of activity does it give us any indication of what the rest of the monsoon might be like? No. Well, and, and that, I don't think so. Yeah, and anecdotally, we can use last year as, a, as in fact, I remember last year on this podcast, I was saying we're playing with house money after the first two and a half inches fell by like July, July that? 4th. That's right. You know, and it turned out yeah. that- You spent la- a lot of house money <laughs> after that for the next two weeks yeah, is what I, you ended up doing. Yeah, I guess I- right. I have to think more about how to... There's yeah. so much anticipation. I think yeah. this is what you're saying around when when the monsoon starts that... And we want to experience a, a longer monsoon than a shorter monsoon. You know, and I think it's I think it's that. I think, I think that there's all this sort of emotional buildup and expectation for something right on July 4th. There, there is tons of sort of conventional wisdom around that it always rains on July 3rd or July 4th in the afternoon of wherever you are standing in the Southwest. I've heard that pretty consistently. And now that people aren't experiencing it, they sort of think that there's sort of a trend. We don't really see that in the data. And the fact that the monsoon season really isn't very long. If you get two weeks into it and you really only get a good eight weeks of activity out of it, you start to feel cheated. And, And I feel that too, as days slip away, like we're missing a chance here, right? And so, but... It's not, you know, July 10th is not outside of historical variability. It's a little bit of a a bummer since we had all of that heat to contend with. But now that we're in it, I think now we should look forward. Let's stop talking about the past now, Zach. Yeah, I want to talk about last year. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) See, and then what do you do? One more, one more, one more point, though, because I want to, I want to emphasize what you're saying. Like, like I guess I'm a climatologist. You talk about yeah, we have to put this in the historical record. That's our job. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Forgot about that. Okay. 
the monsoon started, let's say even a week later, which is a substantial amount of our short monsoon season, that it's not a predictor of what is going to come. And last year, by July 2nd, we had close to two and a third. So we were a third of the way there. And yet, you know, we finished above average. But if you look at the second half, it was, it didn't hold up to what the first half showed us. So from August 10th onward, or August 11th onward, there was really one substantial rain event at the at the airport. Yeah, uh, and again, that that's not indicative of what else is going on, particularly at higher elevations and in other areas. But the point here is, yeah, we started a little bit slower this year, but uh, and yeah, we don't have house money. But I'm not even sure that make that analogy actually is appropriate. It's your analogy. Well, I don't think it's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so and this is this is the, the tough thing that we have about the monsoon every year is that you and I experience different monsoons because you live on the west side of Tucson and mm-hmm. I live on the east side of Tucson. I live right? close to the airport. You live close to the airport. Okay. So yeah. you 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 exist in the the real monsoon, right? Because it oh, only really, really well, I don't we only collect the we only do the, That's the true. data analysis. It's on, all about the international I live on airport. the east side, which is, you know, we're out in it's, data hole? it's wilderness. It's it's the climate <laughs> wilderness on the east side. We gotta we have to use <laughs> remotely sensed images to figure yes. out if it rained yes. over there. That's basically it, yes. <laughs> I.e. rain log. I.e. rain log. No, actually that's that's thank you, rain loggers out there for doing what you do. The interesting thing about last year was that we had this discussion in Tucson about our June event. Well that June event didn't happen everywhere in the Southwest. It was a very localized event and it was a very kind of it was a very showy event because it flooded out parts of Tucson. It was a couple of really good rainy days. It was really quite impressive, but you didn't have to go far to see that that event was was fairly localized. So you got a bunch of house money in Tucson, and parts of Tucson got way, way more house money. But the rest of the monsoon season, if you know, if you go to Phoenix, Phoenix didn't see its first substantial monsoon rainfall to well after July 15th, which is when we picked back up on the monsoon activity. So, you know, last year looks a whole lot more like this year as far as that break, just in thinking about the timing of the precipitation and even some of the temperature patterns that we've seen here for other parts of the state. If you go back through the record, uh, historical record, you can find every different flavor of the monsoon thing monsoons that started early monsoons that started late monsoons <clears throat> that were characterized by basically two events or one event monsoons that were characterized by a whole bunch of small events yep there aren't any actual coherent patterns that you can um, not really I mean and there's good there's good research around this too of people trying to do studies of time series analysis of looking at cyclical nature of, of rainfall events or is there any predictability if you have a late, onset of the location of overall seasonal totals. And there, there's just not a lot of good relationships that emerge from that because it becomes very sort of day-to-day weather-driven at the location within the monsoon season. So we do end up taking it back day by day. And then good looking back through the historical records, like you said, we see just all sorts of different flavors that become kind of incoherent when you sort of scale them up and look at multiple stations all at once. Let's deconstruct a little bit of what happened up until uh, a couple days ago. We've talked about this before last year. We sort of reviewed the ingredients that are important for, you know, widespread precipitation, those being, you know, you have to have moisture present. Mm -hmm. And those can come from a couple different sources. They come from the east and they also come from the, the Gulf of California, Baja California area. So you have to have a moisture supply. You have to have dynamic instability as well. You have to have the ability for that moisture that's near the surface to rise up, to condense, and to rain out. Uh, and so temperature profile in the atmosphere is 
uh, is important along with the moisture. And if you have those two, you also need some steering winds and if you and winds aloft. And if you if you have winds aloft, you can blow the the precipitation that can that oftentimes starts to form around the mountains first. You can blow those off the off the mountains into into the valleys. And if you don't have those, you can get, but you do have moisture and you do have some instability, then you can get uh, precipitation that is more centered on the on the higher elevations. And so what I was looking at, you know, at the first 10 days or so of, uh, of July, I, the moisture wasn't really there. Thinking about the evolution of that, you know, synoptic pattern, when we're talking about sort of the weather circulation pattern, is that we had right at the, later part of June and into the early part of July is we ended up having a couple of jet stream disturbances come across and really knock the subtropical ridge out of position, sort of shunted it back to the south. And as soon as you're doing that, you're back into sort of the dry fetch of the westerlies. You're more spring-like than you are summer. And it's only been until very recently that we start to see that subtropical ridge build far enough north that we're not on the north side of it, which is in the westerlies, but we now start to get that ridge to the four corners, which is why we, we call it the four corners high in the upper levels to start to now see more of an easterly flow, a southerly, south, uh, southerly, southeasterly, and easterly flow at different levels of the atmosphere. And then you have to have that subtropical convection occurring to the south and to the east, and then the ability to actually have these Gulf surge events come up the Gulf of California to start to put together the amounts of moisture that you need at different levels of the atmosphere to take advantage of the thermodynamics of just having all this heat here. So how do you get those surges? You've got to have the right uh, sea surface temperatures in the Gulf of California, which actually progress up through the Gulf of California and warm up to get to a point where they become unstable enough to start to break through, actually have a marine layer inversion on the Gulf of California. And then once it warms up, you know, get that Gulf of California water gets anywhere from the upper 80s to almost 90 degrees. And then, then it's super juicy, giving off a lot of moisture to the atmosphere and creating a real soupy low-level air mass. But what you'll end up having is thunderstorm complexes down in Mexico traversing across the opening of the Gulf of California or a uh, hurricane that will come up there. And once it does that, the cool air mass, high pressure at the bottom of the Gulf of California interacts with the really hot surface thermal low in Yuma and sets up a pressure differential. And then you end up, end up having- It just like blows the, yeah, squeezes yeah. <laughs> the Right, so it's, you know, it's high pressure at the low, at high pressure at the southern end of the Gulf of California, low. So high moving towards low will induce that surge of low level moisture. And, and then other, Circulation patterns have to be in place to sort of sort of steer it up here and move it into place. But we really haven't had all those sort of pieces come together until pretty recently in the last week or so. To really have good, and again, it's like, what's a good monsoon day? It depends on who you are and where you're at. You know, when I think we think about a good monsoon day, we want some kind of very intense, widespread activity that moves across a region. And those are big organized events. So you have to have a lot of things in place, which were all of those things you were talking about earlier, which is you know a lot of low-level moisture, steering flow, um, where you can move storms off of the mountains where they're going to form first because they have the most instability, and then be able to propagate into the lower desert areas where it's, where it's much harder to have that good thermodynamics. And so you have to have a lot of pieces to come together to be able to do those big events to put down a lot of rain everywhere, which is why they only happen really honestly a couple times a year. Other than that... On the other end of the spectrum is is if you've got a mountain sticking up into the sun and having that moisture, it's going to produce convection almost on a daily basis as long as that moisture is available. 
So you can see these vastly different amounts during any one rain event that's obviously related to topography. You know, you've got the topography inducing the convection, getting some of the outflows of that interacting across the city. We're putting up some more storms. Um, and we got those sort of 10th to quarter inches around Tucson. It wasn't until the overnight hours where you actually had the big mesoscale, mesoscale convective complex, which is much more organized upper level, uh, much much better dynamics with upper level support that can cause large areas of thunderstorms to break out. So wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna step back. Okay. What do you mean by upper level support? Uh, you know, I'm watching the different weather experts do discussions on the last couple of days. Things talking about things like inverted troughs, um, where you'll have cooling at the upper levels. So if you have cooler air at upper levels, you can move uh, cooler air in uh, over top of warm air at the surface. You're gonna in, uh, create much more unstable atmosphere. And if you can have areas of what we call divergence at upper levels, which will help exhaust out or actually cause ascending motions in the atmosphere, which will help um, support uh, thunderstorm Uplift development. and instability. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you have the, the cooler temperatures aloft uh, and you have divergence at aloft that helps bring the, uh, the moist near surface cond- air, air masses up, condense, rain out. Yeah, it improves the thermodynamic <laughs> improves the thermodynamic profile. <laughs> yeah, and and also there's sort of steering flow in the atmosphere too, which will help these storms organize. What you want to have is you want to have broad areas of rising motion that sustains the convection, and then you can have these. You, you even watch them on radar. They're not a bunch of little small cells that are separated from each other. There's these big areas of widespread rainfall that will um, turn into these sort of broad areas of moderate rainfall afterwards and then you can get events that last for multiple hours rather than that 30 minutes or 15 minutes of and that's what happened on here in Tucson yeah and, and it's yeah. what happens really frequently down in Mexico and what we'll see is these large uh, thunderstorm clusters sort of move from east to west around uh, across northern Mexico and we'll end up seeing the outflows from them because there, there's all this rising air and then there's all this precipitation occurring out of them and then all this cool rain-cooled air then spreads out in every direction. Kind of like, you know, if you've poured a bucket of water on the ground and watched that expanding wet area kind of move out in every direction, it's kind of the same thing in the atmosphere. And so on that front leading edge of that cool air, it's a mini cold front. And that mini cold front's gonna shove air up. And if it does that in um, conditionally unstable air, it's gonna cause convection to occur and fire off new storms. So it's the thing that you'll see across like Douglas and the, the border cities in Arizona, they'll see a lot of this and they'll even get overnight thunderstorm activity from that. But it's we're a little bit too far north to see a lot of that activity throughout the season, often. As these storms drop a bunch of precipitation very intensely and they, they can generate pretty substantial winds. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's yep. part of the outflows. I mean, yeah. they, they can be upwards of you know, 50, 60 miles an hour. Absolutely. And so the drier the lower atmosphere, the more of evaporation will occur with these storms. And so it'll convert that precipitation into rain-cooled air, which then has energy to spread out in uh, every direction and turn it into wind. A wetter atmosphere will end up typically having um, less wind and more rainfall associated with it. So it's Mm. kind of the wind is sort of early season. Phoenix will see more wind because lower elevation has usually less low-level moisture so that's how those haboobs can sort of propagate to the north and we'll end up having more rain. They'll end up having more wind. But when it's a really good, deep, soupy day and the low deserts are socked in, everybody can get rain all at once. So it's the beginning. How do you feel? 
I feel good. I'm, I'm looking forward. I, well, yeah, let's I, just look forward, man. You know, some of the things that we do know is that about a, about a quarter of the days during the monsoon receive rain. So what's that, 25, 27 days, mm-hmm. more or less? For Tucson, yeah. For Tucson. So, you know, we've got a quite a bit of monsoon action ahead. I mean, I, we get so hung up on what happens right at the beginning of July. The busiest times of the monsoon is really late July and into August. And so we've got a lot to look forward to. It's early. There's still a lot to look at. We're going to be watching the East Pacific tropical storm season. We've had, there's been plenty of activity. Those are really important later uh-huh. on in the season. They are. And the um, subtropical ridge is in a much better position to start to steer them. And the Gulf of Mexico. At that time. Yeah. And the Gulf of Mexico is, is lighting up now too. And Gulf of Mexico has been fairly slow in recent years. And every once in a while in past years, a busy Gulf of Mexico season, those decaying storms can ride the easterlies underneath our subtropical ridge and actually produce weather for us too. We haven't seen that in the last two years, I, I think. So there's still a lot of exciting stuff to to look at going forward. What's your prediction? Oh, man. Come on. Um, climatology. That's our best predictor, climatology. <laughs> it's, it's all I got. It's all I got yeah, right bet now. Bet on climatology. Yep, and there will be air bars around it. That's for sure. <laughs> It's great to finally be back in, in the monsoon season. I love talking about this. Me too. We'll both be sticking around. Um, it's I when I, when I pay more attention to uh, the, the daily weather and when I you know have my annual recurrence of watching YouTube videos about how to read a skew tea plot, <laughs> 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 teaching myself some, uh, some meteorology. And a shout out to, uh, uh, you know, we haven't done this. We, sh- we should have had a shout out to Bob Maddox's uh, weather blog that he writes for Tucson. It's really one of our go-to sources of, of information and he updates it daily. Uh, it's called Mad Weather, uh, madweather.blogspot.com. And for uh, for those of you who don't pay attention to it, it's uh, it's definitely worth uh, viewing on a daily basis. Yeah, so I think it's a shout out to him. That's on- an indispensable resource. And, and Mike and Will who write the WERF discussion too. So out of the atmospheric sciences department here at U of A, reading their discussion every day is what you know, keeps me trying to get my, I, you know, it's every year. I feel like I know a little bit less about the monsoon because it just feel like there's yet another thing that I hadn't thought about that makes it more, it complex. gets more complicated. It just feel, it feels like it gets more complicated over time for sure, wow. which is fun. I think that that's, that's the, the cool thing about it. Science is hard. Science is hard. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody for, uh, for tuning in and we'll come back in a month. I think we'll be going for the halftime report. Yeah, right? it'll be the halftime report. It'll be fun to talk to you guys uh, throughout the season. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. The Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of CLEMIS, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with CLEMIS, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA program manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, research outreach and assessment specialist with Clemus. What actually do, do? do you read? Yeah. I end up looking at weather maps uh, late at night. When, this is perfect. I mean, this should give everybody that's listening a, a big vote of conference <laughs> that we're not spreading fake weather news. <laughs>